Welcome back to episode four of Over the Top, a Great War podcast. It's August 9th as I'm recording this episode, but I'll still say happy Veterans Day to all those who've served and especially all those who pay the ultimate sacrifice. Happy Veterans Day. This will be part two of the Huns of August series, and I hope you're enjoying the podcast so far. I know it can be gruesome. If you listen to the last episode, then you got just a little taste, just a small little slice of the pie. And trust me, it's going to get much worse starting in the next couple episodes. On this episode, you'll start to see why or how the Western Front became what it was. And what I mean by that is, at this point in history, two major powers, France and Germany, are still approaching the ring to duke it out. And a third great power, Great Britain, is mounting up. Liège is just the starting gate for the Hunschliefen plan, and Plan 17 is barely about to kick off. Each side thinks they're walking into the ring like they're Mike Tyson and the opponent is Peter McNeely and they're just going to knock the other one out quickly. It's like watching a baby take its first steps of the war, but very soon, that little shit will start running. On the last episode, I thought my script would take me past the 30 minute mark, but I came up a little short. I apologize and will do my best to make them a little longer. A podcast that deals with history and so many details, I think it's important to find a manageable time frame you could put out episodes, and most importantly, that won't stress you out, while of course keeping the integrity of the actual history. Don't overcommit to lengthy episodes that will take weeks to research and script. Just go with what flows best, and this seems to be working great for me right now, and I hope you're enjoying it too so far. Also, I've had a couple people reach out to me asking, hey, can you talk about the Muse Argonne? And the answer, of course, is yes, but it won't be till much later on in future episodes. And because I'm going off a timeline, I honestly can't tell you when that will be. Remember, the Americans didn't start arriving in France until June of 1917. And yes, some units did see action like medical units and engineers, but the bulk of the Marines and Army with the more famous battles didn't take place until 1918. I personally can't wait to go into the stories of the Harlem Hellfighters. I'm a big fan of their story. You'll hear about some real heroes from that unit. I'm taking my family on a vacation soon to New York, and I'm really hoping to have the time to see the Armory and Memorial in Harlem. But there's a lot to get through before I get to the American Battles and the 369th Infantry Regiment. But why are we here, folks? It's because the Germans have kicked off the war after seizing Luxembourg's rail lines and now have entered the main city of Liège. It's August 7th, 1914. The Germans have broken through the ring of forts that protect the city and have captured the citadel. General Le Mans has escaped to Fort Lanson, where he's still in command of the brave Belgium army who continues to put up a resistance. Actually, I'll let you be the judge if this is bravery by the Belgians or stupidity, and I'll get into that shortly. French Commander-in-Chief Joseph Joffre refused to alter Plan 17 to help the Belgians and will continue on course with concentrating the majority of French troops on attacking and liberating Alsace and Lorraine. By the way, Google Strasbourg, France and look at the images. It's visually stunning and definitely worth fighting for. But here's the thing. The French were aware of the German Schlieffen plan and when the Germans walked through Luxembourg heading for Liège, they should have altered Plan 17 and sent troops to cut them off, or at least to help the Belgians. But Joffre didn't care about the Belgians at this point in time. His only concern was, number one, his ego, and number two, getting back the region that was lost over 40 years ago. This was personal. 
But let me veer off for a moment to discuss an event that had a major impact on how the First World War was fought. This event was called the Industrial Revolution. It took place during the 18th and 19th century, and its purpose was to get people away from the farms and into manufacturing factories that were fueled by coal, steam, and water. Instead of people slowly making items by hand, they now have machines to do the bulk of the work. And how does this relate to the Great War? It's because armies now had new, more effective weapons to kill each other with. Actually, killing isn't the word I'm looking for. I think butchering or slaughtering is the better word. Soldiers now have the capability to turn their enemies into ground beef with the weapons they now have. The soldiers will now have machine guns such as the Maxim, the Vickers, the Lewis, and the Browning that can cut through multiple people with one squeeze of the trigger. They'll see more accurate rapid-firing rifles, new grenades, and even flamethrowers. War will also now take place in the air with planes like the Fokker and the Spad, S-P-A-D. Tanks like the Mark IV, Mark V, and the German A-7V will make its debut on the battlefield. And the one piece of upgraded military arsenal that will haunt the troops for the entirety of the war? Artillery. New field guns and artillery will rain down hell on all sides and become the iconic symbol of what drove every man on the front lines insane. This new type of warfare will give birth to shell shock, or what is better known today as PTSD. Now let's veer back. Germany had two artillery pieces being produced that the world had never seen called siege mortars. One was a 12-inch, 305mm mortar produced by an Austrian munitions firm named Skoda. It weighed about 45,000 pounds. The other, built by Krupps in Germany, was nicknamed Big Bertha, and she was a 16.5-inch, 420mm beast that fired an artillery shell a yard long, which weighed around 2,000 pounds. She hailed in at about 75 tons and had a crew of about 200 soldiers. Bertha was so big she had to be set in concrete before going into action and was shipped in sections. The 200-man team could fire about 10 rounds per hour. And some of you might be saying, well, that's not a lot of rounds for one hour. And it's understandable to think that if all you know is what you see is used today. But for a monster that size in 1914, 10 rounds per hour is actually a lot of rounds. Each round weighed around 2,000 pounds. The crew had to electrically fire it so they could be a couple hundred yards away, laying on the ground with protective padding on their heads. The gun teams of the 305s and 420s actually were putting in some serious work. And think about this. The French were walking into this war with the majority of its artillery arsenal being the French 75. And no, I'm not talking about the drink. I'm talking about the 75mm workhorse cannon. Think about that. For the majority of my first enlistment in the army, I was on an 84mm recoilless rifle gun team, better known as the Carl Gustav or a Gustav gun team. I first served as an ammo bearer, then as an assistant gunner, and then as a gunner. At that time, this was the loudest handheld weapon system in the army. It's been a while, and I don't know if this is still true today. When you're the AB and AG, you feel the concussion when the Gustav is fired. I mean, you feel it from the inside of your body. It's basically like a small artillery being fired from the shoulder. 
And when you're the gunner and it's sitting on your shoulder and you're looking down the sights, steady breathing, taking aim with that big green tube on your shoulder, when you squeeze that trigger, you feeling it doesn't describe it. It's like getting punched between the eyes. You feel it in your chest and your face, and it takes some time to get used to. Here's a clip of the Gustav being fired. Now imagine that sitting on your shoulder when it's being fired. It's loud. To give you an idea how loud it is, once we fired too many rounds back to back, so we got quarantined to monitor our hearts. It was said if you fired over six rounds back to back, you can risk tearing microscopic holes in the lining of your heart. That's how loud it was. Not sure if that ever happened to anyone, but it didn't happen to us. We were all good and back at it after we were cleared. And my point to this was, imagine being next to a 420 millimeter Big Bertha when it's fired. Good God. Another monster the Germans were using was the 211mm Krupp Morser, and its shells weighed around 250 pounds. The cannons looked like these small, fat, double-wrapped slugs. In the movie War Horse, there's a scene where Joey and his horse pals are pulling up some Krupp Morsers up a hill to be used against the British. Not sure how accurate this is, but regardless, it's a good scene with cool special effects that show them in use. And I really enjoyed the movie War Horse. On August 7th, after taking the Citadel of Liège, General Otto von Emmick arrested the Burgomaster when he discovered that General Le Mans had escaped. He told the mayor that Liège would be shelled and burned to the ground if he did not get Le Mans or the king to stand down and surrender all forts so the German army could pass without further hassle. The Burgomaster refused and became a prisoner to the German army. That evening, three more brigades broke through the forts to join the 14th in the city. Yet, none of the forts still had yet to surrender. On August 9th, the German government made a last effort to persuade the Belgians to let them pass through and to save their people from any further bloodshed and destruction. They even assured the Belgians they had no intentions of taking any Belgian territory and that they would evacuate immediately after the war. On August 12th, King Albert refused. The Germans gave the Belgians chance after chance to save its cities from destruction and people from further bloodshed, and the Belgians just kept refusing. And keep in mind, they were technically supposed to be a neutral country. And here's where I'll let you be your own judge of King Albert and his decision to keep up the resistance. At this point in time, French General Joseph Joffre still refused to alter Plan 17 to help the Belgians. He basically gave them the finger and said, don't make your problem my problem. Germany is practically begging Belgium to stand down, saying, don't make us hurt you. Please let us pass without any problems, and we'll leave after the war is done. Their beef wasn't with Belgium at this point. I think at some point during this time, King Albert must have considered making a truce with Germany. France just showed them what a great friend they were. The Belgium army was on the verge of pulling all its troops up to Antwerp. It was a desperate situation. But the king refused to make a pact with Germany. He knew Belgium's friend and ally, Great Britain, was sending an expeditionary force to help out. Kaiser Wilhelm himself knew the British would put up a fight and would not make it easy for Germany to continue on with the Schlieffen. At the Supreme Headquarters in Berlin, he stated the following to an American ambassador sent by Wilson to offer peace plans. Quote, The English changed the whole situation. An obstinate people. They will keep up the war. It cannot end soon. End quote.
With King Albert's refusal, Belgium will pay. Oh, they will pay. Maybe more than any other country. The German Empire will absolutely rape Belgium. They will nearly wipe cities off the map, turning them into piles of rubble. And they will turn Flanders into a wasteland. A lot of people will die. Nothing at this point will stop Germany from continuing on with their war plan. Belgium will sacrifice a lot of people to put up a resistance when they could easily have just said, we don't stand a chance against the German Empire. France left us hanging. We have no choice but to stand down. After all, again, they were a neutral country before this war kicked off. Sacrificing not only soldiers and civilians, but cities, had to be a hard pill to swallow for King Albert. But do you know why I think Albert refused any sort of deal with the Huns? Stupidity has nothing to do with it. I think it's because of a thing called camaraderie. The Belgians and the British were pals, amigos, and pals stick together through the shit. The British sent a message to Belgium that they were on its way. The Belgians won't be the only ones making sacrifices. All of the British Commonwealth will have sacrificed a godly amount of souls by the end of this war. As you probably know by now, I feel this war was an atrocious abomination to the world brought on by politicians and other baboons. But I also feel it brought out the brave, the millions of brave soldiers who fought and died. There's still to this day thousands upon thousands of unaccounted for British Commonwealth soldiers buried in the earth of the Ypres salient, Passchendaël, and all throughout Flanders, maybe to never be found and brought home. I think King Albert's thoughts were, we have a serious fight, but we're soon not to be alone in this fight. Since the Belgians decided to make a stand and continue the fight, on August 10th, Helmuth von Moltke ordered the siege mortars into action. Two big Berthas were loaded on rails from Essen, Germany, and their next stop was Liège. They made it to Belgium that night, but were stopped about 20 miles east of Liège because the Belgians had blown a rail tunnel. They had to be hauled in pieces the remaining distance by road, which was no easy task considering the size of these cannons. Closed roads, failed harnesses, multiple breakdowns, most of the passing by army had to lend a helping hand getting these behemoth guns the remaining 11 miles until they were in range of the forts. Back to August 7th. While the Germans had taken the main city of Liège, Joffre put into motion Plan 17. The French had five armies. The first and the second faced the Germans 6th and 7th in Alsace and Lorraine. This was the right wing of the attack whose purpose was to drive the Germans back over the Rhine. On the furthest point on the right wing was a special assault force detached from the First Army, much like the one the Germans used for assaulting Liège. Their job was to liberate Mulhouse and Colmar. Again, if you Google Alsace-France, you'll see why the region was dear to the French and why it meant so much getting it back. Even today, the region is split between German and French language. It looks German, yet some will argue it's all France. I'll let you be the judge. The 3rd, 4th, and 5th armies were placed along a line that stretched all the way up to Verdun. This would be the great assault force through the German center, or so this is what Plan 17 had detailed. And so it begins. The time for Plan 17 has come. Joffre's five armies will face off with the Huns, knock them out, and reclaim what is rightfully theirs. Once again, they will wave the French flag above this region that was wrongfully taken from them. Or so, this is what Plan 17 had detailed. I like the way Barbara Tuckman describes this region as the French soldiers await the assault on Alsace. You can hear it through her words how she admires this landscape. She says, quote, The covering troops waiting among the thick, rich pines of the Vosges tremble with readiness. 
These were the remembered mountains with their lakes and waterfalls and the damp, delicious smell of the forests where fragrant ferns grew between the pines. Hilltop pastures, grazed by cattle, alternated with patches of forest. Ahead, the shadowed purple line of the Ballon d'Alsace, highest point in the Vosges, was hidden in mist. Patrols who ventured to the top could see down below the red roof villages of the Lost Territory and gray church spires and the tiny gleaming line of the Moselle where young and near its source, it was narrow enough to be weighted. Squares of white potato blossoms alternated with strips of scarlet runner beans and gray, green, purple rows of cabbages. Haycocks, like small fat pyramids, dotted the fields as if arranged by a painter. The land was at its peak of fertility. The sun sparkled overall. Never had it looked so much worth fighting for. No wonder the illustration in its first issue of the war showed France in the person of a handsome pilou sweeping the beautiful damsel Alsace off her feet into a rapturous embrace. End quote. On the morning of August 7th, the French strike force under the command of General Louis Bonneau presented arms in classic bayonet-style formation and charged across the frontier, taking the town of Altkirch, which led into Mulhouse. The assault lasted about an hour and only caused around 100 casualties. It's sad when you hear the words, only 100 casualties, but considering what lies ahead, 100 casualties will end up being child's play. The French soldiers paraded around Altkirch in triumph, raising the French flag, and on August 8th, they entered Mulhouse without firing a single shot. It turns out all the German soldiers withdrew about an hour before Bonneau's assault force arrived. The Germans had withdrawn to put up a defense in the northern sector of the frontier. Some of the civilians in Mulhouse welcomed and cheered on the French soldiers, gifting them with chocolates, pastries, and pipe tobacco. But not all welcomed the French. Some of the citizens were German who settled in the town around 1870. One French officer riding through on horse described the unwelcoming individuals as he passed by, saying, quote, Grave and impassive faces, pipe and teeth, who looked as if they were counting us, end quote. Well, monsieur, you were being counted. These same pipe-smoking, impassive-faced individuals fled in the middle of the night, schnitzel in hand, to report the size of the French division that now occupied Mohaus. The Germans gathered up reinforcements from Strasbourg and surrounded Mohaus during the night. Fighting began on the morning of August 9th and continued on until the morning of the 10th, when the French withdrew fearing that they would be overrun. Now, before you start judging the French army, which I can hear now, note the generals under Joffre warned him about the size of their attacking forces and that they needed more reserves. Trust me, the French army are far from being the stereotypes people think about the French army. They fought hard. They fought with courage. They fought the whole war. They lost a godly amount of soldiers, and they need to be respected. Before August 7th, French commanding officers like Bonneau met with Joffre and urged him to consider more reinforcements before the attack. Especially for a smaller strike force, they needed the backup. But Joffre refused to hear anything of the sort, saying it wasn't the size of the army that wins the war, rather it was the determination of the officers to win the war. I'm not going to sit here and say that Joffre was a stupid man. Obviously, I know he wasn't dumb. He served as a junior artillery officer during the Franco-Prussian War, spent much of his military career in the colonies as an engineer officer. He led successful missions during the Sino-French War. He even served under Joseph Galliani in Madagascar, which he was then promoted to general. 
I mean, by the time the Great War kicked off, he was already past 60 years old. I mean, shit. I'm in my 40s, and I just want to sit on a deck overlooking a beach, drinking cold beers while eating tacos, or sit on some porch outside of a cabin, staring at the mountains while I sip on some bourbon. 60 years old. Yeah, by now he was already plumped up like Hansel. He loved food and wine. But his mentality for fighting wars was outdated. He hadn't exactly adapted to or given any thoughts to new modern warfare tactics. Joffa's problem was his ego was too big for his shoes. Nothing he said was wrong, and anybody who questioned his decisions he considered a threat. I know a couple people like this. Their egos are bigger than the luxury vehicles they drive, bigger than the offices they sit in. You are just a peasant in their eyes, an expendable number on a board that can be easily replaced by somebody that will bow at their every move. Morals and rational decisions don't drive them. Money, greed, and power is what gets them out of bed every day. Joffre was living in his own egotistical world. This war was going to start out his way. Losing Mulhouse that quick was a humiliating punch right in the gut of the French. Their pride was hurt. They took Mulhouse without firing a single shot, and a couple days later the Germans took it right back. You know what? But screw the French pride and their feelings getting hurt. Because you know who's going to pay the ultimate sacrifice for this? Those citizens welcoming the French is who. Once the German army came back, the German inhabitants pointed out those who celebrated just a couple days before. And those so-called traitors would suffer the wrath of the German Empire, much like the citizens outside of Liège. This is also when Joffre will point the finger and blame his commanders for not having enough will to win. He'll start his path of rage by relieving officers of their duty, Bonneau being one of them. See, it wasn't Joffre's fault. It couldn't possibly be Joffre's fault. Oh no, poor Joffre. Even though his commanders advised him on the need for reinforcements and even advising him not to ignore Belgium. Oh, poor Joffre. The incompetence that surrounds you. I hope you can sense the sarcasm because I'm trying to spread it on thick. Joffre was an ass who had an issue with taking advice, thinking his men were trying to undermine him all the time. When told about the need for reinforcements, he was quoted saying, That may be your plan, but that is not my plan. But Joffre wasn't done. He added one regular and three reserve divisions to join the 7th Division Assault Force. They were going to renew the assault into Mohouse. Sort of a mulligan situation where you shank the first ball, your friends turn their head, and you just tee up again like you were just warming up or something. I actually average around 55 mulligans for every 18 holes I play, so one mulligan, that's not too bad. Just for a bit of side humor that somewhat pertains to this, in today's news, shouldn't even call it news, I should call it just crap. In today's crap, all we hear about is fake news or people not reporting the facts correctly. This might have originated during the First World War. And on August 9th, General Galliani was eating at a cafe in Paris with a friend when he overheard an editor from Le Temps newspaper say, quote, and I'm going to try to say this with a French accent to kind of give you the ambiance of a cafe in Paris. I can tell you that General Galliani has just entered Kilmar with 30,000 men, end quote. Galliani then turned to his friend and said the following, quote, and that is how history is written, end quote. Kind of funny how this still lives on today. They actually don't talk like this in Paris today. It's a very international city. In fact, let's do a little side story to break the monotony of the war. I'll give you a little fact about myself that pertains to Paris. I left Southern California for the army in 95, and I got out at the end of 2004. 
Since the day I've been back, it's never felt like home. In fact, I can't remember when this place did feel like home. The only reason why I returned is because my children are living here. And now I married my best friend and beautiful wife who is also from California. So I can't just pick up and leave. I can't say I don't like the people because there are a lot of good people in California. But I am an introvert, so that could have something to do with that too. I don't like the traffic, the crowds, the air, the parks here stink. In fact, I don't like a lot of things here. But when I'm in Paris, I get this feeling like I belong. The crowds and traffic don't bother me, neither does having to get on an overcrowded metro line. It just seems to flow right past me. Paris is one of those cities we are just a couple hours away from so many amazing cities filled with amazing history like the Great War. I just get this haunting feeling, but not in a bad way, that I'm somehow connected to that city. If you've ever experienced this, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. Oh, and that's my little side story slash tidbit fact about myself. Let's get back to the war. Meanwhile, back at Liège, German cavalry started screening the mass of its force from the outside world. The French now had sent small detachments from its main force for reconnaissance, but they were held off by German MG8 machine guns. The Germans clearly didn't want to expose their whole force, thinking this could possibly turn Joffre's five armies around and head towards Belgium, which would put a damper in the Schlieffen plan. But Joffre was warned there was a possible massive force that the Germans were hiding. King Albert and General Lenrezac, who was the commanding general on the French left flank closest to Belgium, had sent warning to the Grand Courtier General, which translates to General Headquarters, so I'll just use the term Headquarters or HQ to keep it simple. Lanrezek sent HQ messages regarding troop movement, which he believed was a force much bigger than he could see. The reason he couldn't get closer to the bigger picture was the screening by the Germans and then the fact that the machine guns were holding them off. Even General Fournier, the governor of the French fortress of Malbouge, had warned headquarters that a massive multi-division force was heading towards him and that his men did not have the size to put up a fight against the German army. If they crossed, they would be on their way to Paris. Joffre claimed Fournier had an exaggerated defeatist mind and promptly relieved him of, of command. But after further investigation into the reports, the dismissal of the general was dismissed. Further and further reports of a German mass was being reported out of Belgium to French headquarters. But they still believed the source of information to be suspicious and that the bulk of the Huns were still coming through Alsace. I mean, there's two sides to this. First, you can't believe everything you hear, and I'm sure there was numerous reports piling up. The Germans might use this form of propaganda as a tactic to draw the French away from Alsace is what the French headquarters in Joffre were thinking. And the other side to this is, there was a commanding general reporting to headquarters of a massive buildup. Lindrezak personally witnessed the Germans moving about the frontier in the not-so-far-off distance. Joffre in so many words said, shut your mouth, you're crazy. And part of that could have been for the fact that the Liège forts were still being held by the Belgians. Not one fort had been taken over. If there was this massive force of Huns moving in, then why are all the forts still standing? Remember, you don't have to like your enemy, but you should respect what they're capable of. And the impression I get from Joffre is he didn't respect the Kaiser's army enough to think that this could be part of the tactic in the Schlieffen plan. Flipping back to Liège. General Eric Ludendorff said, F this, I'm done playing games with these Belgians. I'm not wasting any more lives to something we should be walking right over. I got something for them. The big black behemoth siege mortars now started to arrive in Liège. 
and on August 12th, one of them had been set up and aimed at Fort Pontesse. The townspeople took to the streets in awe as these monsters rolled through. The deputy of Liège described the massive slugs moving through the city like this, quote, This piece of artillery, so colossal that we could not believe our eyes. The monster advanced in two parts that was pulled by 36 horses. The pavement trembled. The crowd remained mute with consternation at the appearance of this phenomenal apparatus. It attracted crowds of curious onlookers along its slow and heavy passage. Hannibal's elephants could not have astonished the Romans more. It was the Belial of cannons. In the Parc de Avroy, it was carefully mounted and scrupulously aimed. Then came the frightful explosion. The crowd was flung back. The earth shook like an earthquake, and all the window panes in the vicinity were shattered. End quote. Remember, this is a new modern warfare developed from the Industrial Revolution's rapid development of military power. New inventions made for new ways to destroy and kill. These people living in Liège had never seen or heard anything like this, and they damn sure weren't prepared for the massive belch it let out. I can just imagine the look of complete shock when the first round went off. They had to be thinking... The end of the world is near. The German gun crew, wearing protective padding that covered their ears and mouth, laid on the ground a couple hundred yards away as the first shot was fired electronically. It took about 60 seconds to reach its target and reached an arch of around 4,000 feet high. When the shell hit, it created a massive explosion that nobody had ever heard. It created a cloud with debris and smoke which rose to 1,000 feet high. Think about that. Say go, and that's the shell being fired. Then count to 60, and that's when it lands. 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, and so on. That's a long time for this monstrous shell to be traveling, and the devastation of the shell is unreal. This is a new type of killing machine. And while the 420 was belching out rounds, the Skoda 305s were brought up to start their bombardment of other forts. Belgian soldiers heard the shells whistling along with a haunting sound. They felt and heard the detonations coming in closer as the Germans walked in the fire for accuracy. This means as each round hit, a spotter who was placed on a higher point like a hill, church, or more likely a balloon in this case, would signal the gun team with adjustments, walking the rounds in for accuracy with each shot. Remember, this is 1914. This is a new type of weapon with raw skills. It took a little longer than it would today with our technology which was even worse for the Belgians because it meant more rounds had to be fired. Over and over the rounds came, deafening explosion after explosion, terrorizing the Belgians. Smoke filled the air. Concrete was vaporized into dust and debris. Men were being blown into pieces. They were instantly ground up into meat piles. A head over there, an arm over here, maybe a foot thrown into a pile of rubble. A mangled, burnt pile of skin resembling what might be a face laying on the ground without a skull. Guts were spilled out like they were strands of sausage being laid out on a Sunday barbecue. Those who weren't blown apart were choked to death from the fumes released from the high explosive charges and the smoke from the burning forts. And if they ran outside, they would just be mowed down by the machine guns. 
concrete ceilings and walls crumbled down upon the dead and wounded. One Belgian soldier stumbled up after being deafened by an explosion to help a comrade who was still holding what resembled a partial leg, only to find that soldier's head leaking out brains that had been popped out like a wine cork by exploding concrete. There was fire everywhere, and the living became hysterical just by the thought of another explosion. By August 14th, all the forts east and north of the city had fallen. Pontesse was bombarded shell after shell, then taken by infantry assault. In fact, this was the only fort out of the twelve that was assaulted and taken over by infantry. The roads north of the city were now open for General von Kluck's first army to start its advance. The 420s were moving forward so they could now fire upon the western forts. On August 16th, 11 of the 12 forts had fallen. Now, one 420 was aimed right at Fort Lonson, the last remaining fort where General Lamont and troops were holding down. Between the shelling of Lonson, the Huns still sent emissaries under flags of truce to demand Lamont's surrender. And still, I repeat, and still, Lamont refused. Finally, on the 16th, the last shell was fired at Fort Lonson. The shell penetrated below down to the fort's ammo storage, and the fort exploded from within. As the Germans entered the still-smoking fortress, they found Lamont unconscious. At first, they thought he was dead, but he was just knocked unconscious, semi-buried under crumbled masonry. Lamont was about 63 years old at this time. Would somebody tell me how the hell did he survive through this? That's not a miracle. That's insane. After revived, he was taken to General Von Emick, where he surrendered his sword, saying, quote, I was taken unconscious. Be sure to put that in your dispatches. Emick, still not holding a grudge toward Lamont, responded with, Military honor has not been violated by your sword. Keep it. End quote. Years later, General Lamont would describe how the dreadful last moments in Lonsen went down. He said, quote, A shell wrecked the arcade under which the general staff were sheltering. All light was extinguished by the force of the explosion, and the officers ran the risk of asphyxiation by the horrible gases emitted from the shell. When firing ceased, I ventured out on a tour of inspection of the external slopes, which I found had been reduced to a rubble heap. A few minutes later, the bombardment resumed. It seemed as though all German batteries were together firing salvos. Nobody will ever be able to form an adequate idea of what the reality was like. I have only learned since that when the big siege mortars entered into action, they hurled against us shells weighing 1,000 kilos, the explosive force of which surpasses anything known hitherto. Their approach was to be heard in an acute buzzing, and they burst with a thunderous roar, raising clouds of missiles, stones, and dust. After some time passed amid these horrors, I wished to return to my observation tower, but I had already advanced a few feet into the gallery when a great blast passed by, and I was thrown violently to the ground. I managed to get up and continue on my way, only to be stopped by a choking cloud of poisonous gas. It was a mixture of gas from an explosion and the smoke of a fire in the troop quarters. We were driven back, half suffocated. Looking out of a peephole, I saw to my horror that the fort had fallen, slopes and counter slopes being a chaos of rubbish, while huge tongues of flame were shooting forth from the throats of the fortress. 
My first and last thought was to try and save the remnant of the garrison. I rushed out to give orders and saw some soldiers whom I mistook for Belgian and gendarmes. I called them, then fell again. Poisonous gases seemed to grip my throat as in a vice. On recovering consciousness, I found my aide-de-camp, Captain Kaland, standing over me, also a German officer, who offered me a glass of water. They told me I had swooned, and that the soldiery I had taken for Belgian gendarmes were, in fact, the first band of German troops who had set foot inside the forts. Lieutenant General Gerard Lemont, Liège Garrison. End quote. In Germany as a prisoner of war, Lemont wrote King Albert saying, I would have gladly given my life, but death would not have me. Both Ludendorff and Emmick were awarded the blue, white, and gold cross of Port Le Merit, Germany's highest military medal. The day after Fort Lonson fell, the second and third German armies began their advance, bringing the whole mass of the right wing in motion as they began moving through Belgium. The standoff from the Liège forts only held up the Schlieffen plan by two days, while the rest of the world thought they had held it up by two weeks. Again, Barbara Tuckman puts it best when she writes, quote, What Belgium gave the Allies was neither two days nor two weeks, but a cause and example, end quote. And I'm going to start wrapping this episode up right here. August of 1914 isn't close to being over. The British are mounting up, Joffre has ordered a new assault on Mohouse, and much, much more. I'm finding this part so intriguing because up to now, I've mainly read about autobiographies, battles in Flanders, the Somme, Verdun, and some other battles along the Western Front. But going into depth about Liège and Alsace is new to me, and I'm finding it fascinating because it's really laying out the details of how and why certain situations came to be. And most of all, I'm hoping you're enjoying it right alongside me. On some of the episodes, at the end, I'm going to start recommending a Great War book that I've read or a movie that I've seen. After all, this is supposed to be all about the Great War, and I would like to do my part promoting the community. This week, I'm going to recommend a movie I found on Amazon Prime Video, put out by the BBC Network, called The Wipers Times. It's a true story about a trench newspaper published by British soldiers fighting in the Ypres salient. The first issue was published in February of 1916. I enjoyed it, and if you're a fan of history and the Great War, I think you'll enjoy it too. And that's going to be it for this episode. Thank you for listening and for your continued support of the show. You can find OTT on Google Play Music, Spotify Radio, Stitcher Radio, and Podbean, which is my current go-to for all podcasts. You can also go to my website, www.ottgwpodcast.com, for every episode. Please follow me on Instagram at OTTGW Podcast and on Facebook. Please be sure to leave me a review. Take care, everyone. <laughs>